from PRX. Studio 360. In today's show, we're looking at how science and art and culture are forging a new discipline, the design of life. Synthetic biology used to be completely the stuff of science fiction or of huge corporations on the super secret down low. But today, it's pretty easy for amateur biologists to tinker with DNA on the cheap without the regulatory oversight or the ethical standards constraining bona fide scientists. It's exciting territory we're entering for better or worse, uncharted territory. And a lot of artists are leading the way. Synthetic biology is that rare scientific field in which the real work being done is actually weirder than what we've seen in movies and on TV. The Hollywood formula for dealing with this subject has come in two basic archetypes. First, there's the freaky lone genius. Dr. Frankenstein meets Dr. Moreau. Usually, these guys have been exiled from the scientific community because their ideas are too extreme. Among the most interesting recent examples was the 2009 film Splice. Sarah Polly and Adrian Brody play a pair of renegade scientists who mix animal and human DNA into a creature they treat as a child, even though this creature is emotionally raw and dangerous. Can you smile for me? You know I love you, don't you? You're a part of me. And I'm a part of you. Then there's the other scientist archetype, the one who works for a corporation and has a blind spot to the dangers of letting business drive science. When mayhem inevitably ensues, it's not their fault. They were just doing their job, like the character played by Bryce Dallas Howard in Jurassic World. We have learned more in the past decade from genetics than a century of digging up bones. A whole new frontier has opened up. We have our first genetically modified hybrid. We just went and made a new dinosaur? Probably not a good idea. These stories tend to get more interesting when synthetic biology is woven into the fabric of society. That's why the 1997 film Gattaca is so beloved. It takes place in a future where eugenics and designer children are the everyday M.O. It explores questions of humanity and genetic destiny, whether some qualities like bravery, creativity, guile can't be synthesized. Ethan Hawke plays a character created the old school way. Each day I would dispose of as much loose skin, fingernails, and hair as possible to limit how much of my invalid self I would leave in the valid world. At the same time, Eugene prepared samples of his own superior body matter so that I might pass for him. Customized urine pouches for the frequent substance tests, fingertip blood sachets for security checks, and vials filled with other traces. The most interesting pop culture story right now about designing life is Orphan Black on BBC America. Tatiana Maslany plays a half-dozen different clones who are trying to figure out their origins. How are we all related? We're not. Well, we are, by nature. 
Um, she's referring to nurture. We're clones. We're someone's experiment, and they're killing us off. Is that helpful? Hmm? The clones in the show were created by a corporation called Dyad. At first, Dyad seems to be the standard bad mix of big money and scientists playing God. But as the show develops, the clones get more control over their destiny, and their corporate overlord, played by Michelle Forbes, is more nuanced and complex. You won't find topside in any company directory. We steer the Dyad group with many other multinationals. You're a cabal. Yes. Securing monopolies on a future that embraces genetic engineering, synthetic biology, a future I passionately believe is inevitable. And if you don't profit, someone else will. Yes, but it's not only about profit. Science in this show turns out to be a lot like it is in real life, a tool that can be used for good or evil. This is Studio 360. I'm Kurt Anderson. And in today's show, we are looking at how artists and scientists are using biotech to create living works of art and design. Iran Katz and Yonat Zur play with synthetic biology in very real ways. They're a husband and wife team of artists from Europe and Israel who run a laboratory for biological art at the University of Western Australia that sounds like an enterprise from fiction. It's called Symbiotica. They have created biotech artworks with titles like Pig Wings and Semi-Living Worry Dolls and Extra Ear Quarter Scale. They explained to Mary Fayton that they want to challenge our notions of what life is and what it could become. They're not scientists, but Aron Katz and Yonat Zur are pioneers in the world of biotechnology. They're best known for the Victimless Leather Jacket, a semi-living artwork that has been repeated in galleries around the world more than 20 times since it was first shown in Australia in 2004. The term victimless is used ironically, as we'll soon learn. We were actually commissioned to do a piece for a show about textile and about fashion. Um, It followed our work about the victimless food that we created. One of the most advanced technologies that was going on at the time was uh, trying to grow skin for burn patients. So that became an obvious uh, idea of trying to grow a living surface actually out of uh, skin. Uh, which made it into leather. So we thought, okay, let's try and grow a leather-like material, and the shape that we wanted was a little jacket. It was totally useless in the sense that yeah, it was tiny. It was maybe big enough for a mouse to, to wear if uh, we were successful. I asked them to take me back to 2004, when the first victimless leather jacket was shown in the John Curtin Gallery in Perth. Uh, it was a fairly dark room. And all you could see is actually um, this system with the small semi-living jacket growing. There was something slightly creepy about that. The next room was just traditional leather garments, and people would come out of our room and say that our work is unethical and then not even comment about the usual, you know, the usual use of, uh, of leather. This issue of ethics is central to their work and has earned Katz and Zur international attention. Their use of biological science enables them to raise profound questions, quite literally, about the meaning of life. One of their contributions is to language itself. 
So basically, we want to increase the vocabulary that we have in relation to life. And here's the importance of art, because art is about building a new type of visual language and the verbal language that we identify as lacking. They've coined the terms neolife and neolifism. There's lots of hype around new biological technologies. There's lots of mindsets that are kind of driving changes in, in life that seems to be driven by either misunderstanding of biological processes or exaggeration of the power of our control over biological systems. Um, so neolife is the new approaches to life. Neolifism is the fetishization of that, which is something that uh, United States and myself has been kind of culturally scrutinizing for the last 20 years. Katz and Zur oversee artists from all over the world who come to do their research at Symbiotica. And they're also busy with their own works in this rabbit warren of labs and offices, as Aron shows me. On my tour, I see cell cultures being fed. I see a lab with several projects underway. And then we come across one of the tissue culture labs. It's in this small, plain white room where the walls are lined with sterile hoods that he and Yonat have spent countless hours on projects, including the victimless leather jacket. Is this a space where you recall having some eureka moments? It's not so much eureka moments as much as, wow, it's alive, it's growing, it's working. Yeah. It's kind of interesting when you work with living systems, obviously, it's not just you thinking about an idea and trying to make it work. It's almost trying to collaborate with the living systems that you try to impose your will over. So when we've done the victimless leather, for example... Yeah, I remember the moment where we put everything together and it worked was quite a stunning moment for us. We head along the hallway to what Aron refers to as the most evocative room in the whole building, cryogenic storage. The room holds just a row of freezers and a pot of swirling liquid nitrogen. But the ideas cooked up in here would fit comfortably in the realm of science fiction. There are cells here which are frozen for 30, 40 years. And taking them outside of the freezer... And actually bringing them back to life is quite a magical moment. Bringing frozen cells back to life, it seems incredible. It's actually a mist that you put in the liquid and it spreads and then you look down the microscope and you see that those cells, after a while, are starting to grow and divide and, and, and be alive again. The cryogenic storage is like a frozen library of liveness, just waiting to be awakened. This awakening raises one of the ethical issues that Symbiotica asks us to question. The growing cells are kept alive with fetal calf serum. The meat industry calls fetal calf serum a byproduct of meat processing. A cow is sent to slaughter, is found to be pregnant, and the serum is taken directly from the heart of the calf fetus. For 65 years, scientists have tried to find a synthetic replacement, but have failed. In order to grow cells, and especially muscle cells, in order to grow them in such volume that would make any viable uh, in vitro meat uh, exercise uh, work, you still need to use this fetal calf serum. So in a sense, you know, you still have to grow cows to take the calves out, to suck the blood out of the calves in order to grow this lab meat. So that doesn't make any, any sense. Fetal calf serum is expensive too, adding up to 75 US dollars to the cost of every gram of in vitro meat. It's interesting, actually, in one of our papers, we talk about the fact that animal uh, welfare organizations were recommending the use of tissue culture as a way of minimizing animal experimentation, either being aware or not being aware of the fact that you still use fetal calf serum. You know, my concerns is that a lot of the discussions that we have about ethics uh, seem to be more about aesthetics 
of our relationship to the other than, than the ethics in the sense of if it's so far removed, we don't care about it. And, and a lot of our work actually deals with this idea that what technology seems to be doing really, really good is hiding the victims of our consumption ever so further that we don't need to stop and make any ethical decision. The decision by Katz and Zur to use fetal calf serum in their work has itself brought out the critics. They say you don't have to actually work with the materials. As artists, you can do representation. So you can draw it, you can paint it, you can do something to represent this kind of thing. And I think this is problematic because one of of, uh, the ethos of where we are in Symbiotica is that in order to really understand those technologies and in order to try and understand where it's going, what kind of society we're going to have, you really need to immerse yourself hands-on. Also to experience this uneasy feeling that involving actually messing with life. The use of fetal calf serum is just one of the ethical issues in the world of synthetic biology. Think designer babies or maybe a super race. Later this year, Aron Katz will open an exhibition that explores the promise of the regenerative body. It's called Demonstrable and recognises the 20th anniversary of the Vacanti mouse, the mouse with a human ear grown on its back. For him, it was one of the defining images of the late 20th century, in fact, one which set him on his own career path. But the possibility demonstrated then hasn't come to much. Those four researchers uh, were trying to demonstrate that you can start to create complex three-dimensional tissue that is alive and can replace uh, tissue in the body. Since then, Katz argues the track record of those who've tried has been less than stellar. When you look at the scientific literature, there's an amazing catalogue of failures of what happens to those ears uh, weeks after the, the, the implant is put, and it's like it's becoming misshaped. And I'm actually working with a philosopher at the moment writing a philosophical paper about why it seems that constructed life can't hold its own form and shape. So while some things have developed well in the last two decades, like the bioreactors that allow the research to take place and spray on skin and simple internal organs like tracheas and bladders, the reality around replaceable body parts still falls short of the hype. And it is generating a whole industry around it. As a business model, it's a really interesting business model of seducing us into believing that those things are just around the corner, that we are going to have our body spare parts waiting for us. And actually, journalists and, and, and to some extent even some scientists believe that it's already happening. But actually, if, you, if you're in this field, you understand how far we are from getting even near there. Aron Katz is still most interested in the artistic and cultural scrutiny of the biotech world, the importance of this ongoing conversation about life and the language we develop to describe it. As long as there's a realisation that art can play a major role in scrutinising and articulating what we're doing to life, we might learn from our mistakes. Jonat Zur most wants the art of symbiotica to make us consider the future of life. The different gradients of life, about sentiency, even vitality, you know, if it exists, where we want to continue as a society with our ability to further abstract, fragment and engineer life. And if we don't have the conversation? The technologies are are slowly creeping and, and getting there. And if we don't have a cultural discussion, if we don't have more people who have some kind of understanding, I think we are going to face a very horrible future in the sense that if we only allow the engineering mindsets to control the way we think about life, uh, the decisions that are going to be made are going to be quite nasty. 
Aran Katz and Yonat Zur run Symbiotica, which is a lab for biological art at the University of Western Australia. That story originally aired in 2015 and was produced for us by Mary Faton. Coming up next, we wade through the murky ethics of synthetic biology. Sure, it's easy to wag fingers at corporations, big institutions, but isn't it uncool to tell artists what they shouldn't be doing? That's just ahead in Studio 360 from PRI and WNYC. Stay with us. When it comes to ethics, uh, I think we're really going to have some fascinating challenges because I've always looked at ethics as being a market. You can't really look at ethical behavior without looking at the environment that the behavior is occurring in. Studio 360. In today's show, we are looking at how synthetic biology is creating new tools for artists and a new subculture of scientists. A standard definition of synthetic biology is hard to come by. Basically, it's any kind of biological product that has the capacity to self-regenerate, to grow and adapt. If that sounds slightly creepy, well, yeah. Here to help me sort through the ethical concerns and look to the future of what is and might be possible are two scientists who frequently collaborate with artists and designers. Drew Endy is a professor of bioengineering at Stanford University and Christina Agapakis is a biologist at Ginkgo Bioworks, her startup in Boston that calls itself an organism design company. Drew and Christina, welcome to Studio 360. Thanks for having Glad us. Glad to be here. So earlier in this show, we heard from an artist in Australia who said that if we let engineers uh, totally dominate the synthetic biology uh, innovation, we will have a horrible future in store and we need artists I guess like him, to, to be part of this. Do you agree with that idea? I would strongly agree with that, speaking as an engineer. You know, if you if you look forward only to the nerd rapture, so to speak, <laughs> yeah. that doesn't that doesn't seem particularly compelling. I think that artists and designers are some of the uh, best people uh, one could partner with to imagine what it is that we wish for. I think it also brings a lot of other uh, aspects to bear on the conversation around biotechnology. So, for example, if we were all looking at a painting together, we wouldn't uh, expect that the three of us would have the same opinion of the painting. And and that's something very natural in art. Um, why should it be the case in biotechnology that we expect everybody to agree to have the same opinion on a particular process or product? That's foolish in a way. So I, I couldn't agree. I, I guess that's Oron Katz uh, you're referring to. I couldn't agree more with that sentiment. And I understand a few years ago, you, Drew, organized a project called Synthetic Aesthetics. What, what was the motivation behind that? It was, was it to say, hey, this whole thing should not be left only to the likes of me? I would say yes. The uh, framing was uh, and still is to a great degree one of industrialization. Right, so you can easily find reports issued very recently recommending, quote, industrialization of biology. And, you know, that brings forward a 19th century metaphor around centralized manufacturing, exploitation of neighbor, uh, nature, and so on. And, geez Louise, I, you know, if I stop and think about that for even a moment, I'm pretty sure I'm against industrialization <laughs> of biology. So the historical framing that is more correct and apt is sort of artisanal, pre-industrial? 
I was going to say it's more the opposite, the inverse, that we're trying to biologize industry rather than to industrialize biology. Uh-huh. So you were teamed up with a with a artist for a kind of month-long charrette to see what you guys could do together? Exactly. I was uh, – the the – the program was six pairs of one scientist or engineer and one artist or designer. My partner was Cicel Tolas. She's an odor artist based in Berlin. Um, so we were thinking about how uh, how biology creates odors, how biology and um, chemistry work together in creating fragrance and, and smells, and how do we try to recreate things in nature, um, bring things into the lab, um, and try to understand them through through these processes of artistic inquiry or scientific inquiry. Christina, aren't you guys working on an uh, ancient rose or something like that? Yeah, so we're working on, on rose scent in general. So like how to, uh, to understand what are the varietals of rose that exist? How can we create new varieties? But also uh, can we create extinct flowers? Um, f- the scent of extinct flowers. That's like cool. Find, uh, find DNA, maybe something frozen uh, in permafrost or use kind of an evolutionary biology approach to approximate the, the kind of original or, or ancient and lost flowers and, and then use the, use the technology that we have to recreate those scents. And Drew, what, 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 what else is there that, that I, you know, something we haven't touched upon, which is probably the most exciting for me, is partnering with mushrooms to make stuff. And, and so, for example, there are two companies, one on the East Coast, another on the West Coast, called Ecovative or Mycoworks, respectively, and they're making with mushrooms. You know, so, for example, if you happen to be down at, at, at MoMA over the last summer, you would have seen about a 40 or 50-story uh, tower constructed from mushrooms that had been uh, worked with to basically build macroscopic so-called biobricks and then grow together into an uh, intact structure that then later on composts itself. So, so making with mushrooms all of a sudden uh, seems to be incredibly powerful as a way to take uh, what are typically thought of as waste or composting streams and then all of a sudden instead pivot and, and make uh, macroscopic objects, furniture, packaging, insulation. And when I look forward uh, into that area, increasingly the, the mushrooms seem capable of supporting very precise manufacturing with microscopic patterns and, and so on. Huh. Uh, and one of the places we're aiming is uh, to be able to manufacture, if you will, a mobile phone, a cell phone, using uh, an engineered mushroom that takes compost from your yard and self-assembles or grows into an electronics product. You mean, you mean, and you don't mean just the case, you mean the phone itself? We've already made the case, so that worked pretty quickly because uh, cases are not complicated. They're just yeah. a pattern. But the whole darn thing, yes. The only, the only problem, the biggest problem we've got with this project is it's going to take us, you know, 10, 20 years, and I can't predict what a cell phone is going to look like in 20 years. Boy, speaking of mushroom, I mean, that, 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 that's just amazing. It's some trippy Middle Earth future. We're going to be having mushroom telephones. Uh, uh, I can't you, wait. You've got, to, you've got to appreciate that biology is the most awesome way of building things on Earth. And it, it does it necessarily in partnership with itself. And it works. And, and we're just learning how to get a lot better at partnering with it uh, to make new stuff. It's extraordinary. And it, it really – I mean just what you've described, it just is it sounds literally like a dream. <laughs> uh, I, one thing I've been interested in, in in finding out about this field is, is that um, fetal calf serum is this indispensable part of, of tissue reproduction. Um, I didn't know that. And, and I'm wondering, is that going to be the case forever or is, is that just what we need to do now and we're going to move beyond it? 
there is work to make a vegetarian plant material derived form of serum so that you don't have to sacrifice an animal to grow your mammalian cells. So in a decade, we may, we may not be, be using calves necessarily? Not an expert not. on the timing of that. Yes, <laughs> yeah, I, would okay. wish, yeah. I would wish not. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so, so how, uh, apart from the, the different ways of thinking about a problem or the what-ifs um, that artists and designers might have versus engineers and scientists, um, how do they, as opposed to philosophers or theologians, help you, us, navigate through the, the ethical swamps of all this? I think designers are really good at thinking about people um, and how people are using things and working with things and, and the contexts in which people encounter new new technologies and new experiences. Um, for a designer, often like the, the person is central to the technology. How is a person going to use it? Um, where How are kind of people's values and, and beliefs and cultural ideals? You know, that's that stuff that's ideally, I think, part of the design process and something that's been uh, really valuable for me working with designers. And it's definitely that approach that they have that's really people-centric rather than maybe molecule-centric, which right. is <laughs> certainly what I started with as a scientist. There has been a lot of popular concern over the prospect of re-engineered people, the designer baby problem. Is that worth thinking or fretting about now, or or is it still too far in the future to spend much energy contemplating? I mean, it, it, it's a topic that people are worrying about now, you know, whether whether we like it or not, with, uh, you know, recent advances of new tools for uh, editing existing pieces of DNA being applied in non-viable human embryos. And the Chinese are apparently doing it. Right. So at the same time, it strikes me that there's um, a little bit of a conceit underlying such work in that, for example, uh, a common consideration which is valid is to say, well, how could we make decisions that would impact future generations? Always a good thing to wonder about. Um, but in this particular case, because the tools by which the work is um, happening are changing so quickly, if you wanted to imagine what's available in a few human generations for engineering biology, you know, the tools we have today are, are just likely to not be relevant. Um, and and so it seems like, you know, it's certainly appropriate to have the conversations and to, uh, you know, think things through. But at the same time, to not uh, assume a, a, a too much importance for the self and the, and the now. Um, the, the world that will be enabling of people in the future will be much more powerful. That reminds me of two things. Um, one is um, Bruce Sterling, who's a science fiction sure. writer, has uh, written a book that uh, called Tomorrow Now. And there's one really interesting chapter on biology and the future of biology. And he always talks he, – he has a really interesting sort of passage about this idea of designer babies and how, how terrible it would be to be version 1.0. <laughs> because yes. by the time you're 15, yes. you know, oh, there's a much better super baby model out there. But the second thing also is I think it's really important when we're talking about engineering people to think about how these stories affect the way that we think about us now, non, the non-engineered version of us. Uh, when we talk about sort of the gene for X, Y, or Z, whether it's you know a, a gene for intelligence, for certain personality traits, for whatever it is, um, to realize that those are – 
extreme oversimplifications of what's actually going on in our own biology um, and that there is no gene for almost anything and that all of these things are happening in interaction with our environment, with our culture and our upbringing. Um, so just the idea that we could engineer like better people, it calls into question what, is, what does it mean to be better um, and, and really to, to make that fundamentally about genetics rather than about all this complexity of biology in its, in its context, in its environmental context, I think is, is really limits us in, 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 in many ways beyond the conversation about designer babies. We, we have had some thousands of years to develop a ethical, moral apparatus, apparata. Uh, th- this, th- this whole realm seems to be uh, coming at us with that existing set of uh, moral, ethical rules without any obvious uh, application. We, we, it seems as though we need to sort of, well, I never thought of that. Well, we've never had to deal with that. H- have you guys come up with sort of basic concepts as to, to use as we are developing a way to sort of ethically judge uh, whether we should do X, Y, or Z in this realm? I can only speak for myself, and it has to do with what life is about for me. Uh, what I value about life is how uh, wonderfully improbable it is. Living systems connect into energy gradients, uh, whether it's from the sun to the black of the universe. And and by connecting into these energy gradients as a, a water wheel, if you will, they're able to copy themselves and change over time and, and make these wonderfully sustaining, improbable, beautiful patterns. And for me, that's uh, an, in a very abstract way, in a very personal way, what life is about. And so if I have to make a decision, my decision is going to be, again, for myself, uh, evaluated on the basis of whether or not I'm contributing to or harming life. And so if I'm increasing improbability, then I'll tend to think that's likely to be a good decision um, and vice versa. And I'd favor making good decisions, ones that lead to more life. And so by being alive, I'm contributing to life. But I want to get from each of you, if you would, a, a kind of best guess on the on – the, if we can look whatever period of time down the line we want and say, are we going to be are, – are the odds are that we're going to be closer to the to – the, happy utopian end of things as far as uh, biological engineering goes or dystopian. So, Christina, what are the odds? Well, I think both utopia and dystopia are impossible <laughs> that, that that by definition almost right. you know that there there are these ex- total extremes i think actually drew you have the the half pipe of doom that we tend to really talk <laughs> about these things on on two opposite totally opposite ends and totally ex- total extremes like well everyone is either dead or everyone is living happily ever after um i think the reality is going to be much more in between i obviously hope that it goes more towards that people are working together people are you know working to make uh Working together with each other, working with biology, working towards creating a more more of that improbable and exciting diversity of biology that Drew was saying. So that's fi- my hope. Fifty one percent or sixty percent half full glass would be fine by you. <laughs> yeah, that sounds about right. And Drew, there are things about biology which are so different from our existing technologies and what we're familiar with. And you know, if I were to to touch upon one of them, the fact is biology is already everywhere that people are. And it's not like you have to ship something from Amazon to get the biology there. And what that suggests is that um, for a variety of reasons, including this practical fact that biology is pre-distributed, we might wish for, and I strongly wish for, a future 
that uh, strengthens citizens as opposed to consumers. And, and w- to be for somebody growing up now a, a, a citizen of this realm rather than a consumer, what, what does that mean specifically? It means that you should care about how the tools are being developed and who controls them. So, for example, uh, one of the core technologies, and a quick example, is the ability to print DNA from scratch, so-called DNA synthesis. Well, think about printing presses. Um, if there's only one printing press in the world, then the owner of the printing press has tremendous leverage over what gets said. Um, So, for example, if you are a citizen of future biotechnology, you should begin to care greatly who will control the printing presses for DNA. And can I assure myself that we will all live in a world where there's at least enough of them such that the leverage over the content, the biology that is constructed, is not totally controlled? So it starts with engagement. It starts with following the trends. It starts with having a voice that shapes how things are being developed. And, you know, regardless of whether you practice it or not, to begin to be part of a conversation that ensures that there's a plurality of perspectives guiding what's happening. Rather than just waiting for the biotech corporations of the world to give us marvelous things that we can send away for. Yeah. Drew and Christina, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you as well. Drew Endy is one of the founders of iGEM and a professor at Stanford. Christina Agapakis is the creative director of Ginkgo Bioworks. I spoke with them in 2015. So, did we answer all of your ethical questions about the future of synthetic biology? Or did we barely scratch the surface? Probably the latter. So, use your mushroom phone to let us know what you think at studio360.org. Coming up, our reporter Julia Weatherill personally plunges into DIY biology. Can she go from newbie to Dr. Moreau in just three classes? I'm going to put my actual DNA into the agar. Got it. Got it. Got it. How to grow your own art supplies. That's just ahead in Studio 360 from PRI and WNYC. Stay with us. Studio 360. As we've been hearing this hour, synthetic biology isn't limited to the worlds of giant research institutions and corporations. There is a growing movement to democratize biotech and put its tools into the hands of biohackers, artists, hobbyists, and now public radio reporters. We asked Julia Weatherill to take a crash course in designing life at Genspace, which is the world's first community biolab in downtown Brooklyn. This is what Dr. Ellen Jorgensen, the director of Genspace, tells her students on the first day of class. You really are one of the most advanced manufacturing systems on Earth because you started as this very small thing and now you're 170 pounds worth of human and all of that material was manufactured from the information in a single cell. And it's true. My body is pretty good at building complex organic macromolecules. But my brain hasn't taken biology since high school. How can I go from zero to biohacker, not in a semester of college, but in three classes, a single biotech crash course. Genspace is a nonprofit 
organization that believes that everyone should have access to biotechnology. To facilitate that, we have an actual working lab space where the general public is invited to come in and learn how to do stuff. GenSpace was the world's first community lab of its kind to open in 2009. Since then, other DIY biolabs have cropped up around the world in tandem with the maker movement, although working with living organisms is pretty different from pressing a button on a 3D printer. You have to start with the basics, like how to use a pipetter. Hold that up so you can see it. So pick it up like, you know, typical scientist, right? (laughs) Here you go. And now let go. After that, though, Ellen throws us in the deep end. On the first day of class, our mission is to transform E. coli bacteria, a special non-virulent strain, with jellyfish DNA that will make them biofluorescent. Let me show you what E. coli look like in, in, in their natural form. The experiment we're doing today is a sort of precursor to synthetic biology. Bacteria have a natural tendency to transfer small circlets of genes called plasmids among themselves. We're exploiting that property to make our E. coli glow. Scientists started trying to figure out how they could trick bacteria into taking up these plasmids um, completely artificially. So DNA has a net negative charge, uh, so they decided to put it um, with positive ions. If you put the bacteria on ice in a solution of calcium chloride with this plasmid, and then you heat shock it, some of that DNA will stick to the, um, the membrane of the bacteria and be absorbed in. One week later... All right, let's turn off the lights. Lo and behold. Wow. Dr. Stephen Gordon, a GenSpace member who teaches at a high school on Long Island, is showing us the ropes this week. Over the next class, I amplify my own DNA in a polymerase chain reaction machine and load it for gel electrophoresis using my new and improved pipetting skills. I'm going to put my actual DNA into the agar. Oh, man. Got it. Got it. Got it. (laughs) Finally, for the third class, Ellen sends the genetic samples we took to have one of our mitochondrial DNA markers analyzed. So this is where we find out if you're human or a replicant or something else. When we enter our sequence genetic markers into an online database, I find out I'm related to Utsi the Iceman, a Bronze Age human whose remains were found in an alpine glacier. That's a lot of science for a non-scientist. Instilling that kind of confidence and knowledge in people is a big part of Ellen's mission for GenSpace. Scientists in general are awful at communicating their work to the general public. Philosophically, one of the things that makes these spaces attractive is if the end consumer is already using genetically modified and genetically engineered products in their daily life, and we all are. I mean, it's really, in in so many places, you can't even imagine... So wouldn't it be nice if the end user were also someone who could have a say about what this technology was used for? For $100 a month, GenSpace members have access to the standardized gene sets that are the building blocks of synthetic biology. There are bits and pieces of genes that can recode bacteria to detect heavy metals or smell like bananas. But non-scientists also make up a big part of GenSpace's membership. To my surprise, at one point, we found that most of the people doing work in GenSpace were artists. I meet with Sarah Berman, a scientific illustrator who's been using GenSpace to grow her art supplies. 
So I'm physically illustrating the endocrine system, and then I'm printing that on sheets of acetate, leaving a lot of white area and the gaps of different nerves or anything like that that exists in the gland or the organ, and then I'm going to fill those in with the bacteria. For the past several months, Sarah's been cultivating petri dishes full of fluorescent bacteria. They're transformed with various synthetically altered plasmids to produce different colors. She'll layer them onto her illustrations of endocrine organs, creating a mixed-media installation that comments on organic communication systems in our bodies and in bacterial colonies. I feel very lucky that such a space exists where I can just kind of play with the idea of these things and learn a lot about it, I guess without really much judgment. I mean, here I am like a scientific illustrator coming into a biology laboratory and working with various strains of bacteria. I don't know, I think that's pretty cool. Opening up the gates of bioengineering to unusual suspects could drive the big discoveries of the future. You could say that people like Gregor Mendel were DIY bio because they were amateur biologists. And as genetic engineering continues to shape our lives, Genspace and organizations like it are offering us the chance to take things into our own hands. I would like to see everybody have a working knowledge of something like genetic engineering the same way we have a working knowledge of electricity. We treat electricity with respect, but we're not afraid of it. I think we need to get to that place with some of the new DNA science. Thanks to Julia Weatherall for that story. You can find out more about Gen Space at studio360.org. Science fiction literature, like the movies, has its own predictable tropes. One of the most common storylines is the well-intentioned scientist who creates a vaccine that accidentally wipes out most of humanity, except for a few plucky survivors. Greg Bear's groundbreaking 1985 novel Blood Music starts out that way, but in its second half, it takes an interesting philosophical turn. The book is about the creation of a synthetic virus made up of tiny biological computers, which are intended to improve the human body, giving it routine maintenance from inside out and maximizing human potential. After the virus kills most people in North America, an infected biologist named Michael Bernard flies to Europe and quarantines himself at a lab run by his friend Paulson Fuchs. As they try to analyze the virus, Bernard starts hearing voices in his head. He realizes the tiny synthetic organisms in his body have achieved self-awareness, and they're full of questions. At noon, Bernard's lunch was delivered through the small hatch. He ate slowly, reflectively, occasionally glancing at the monitor. It displayed the tab's recent results in analyzing some of his serum proteins. Bernard, you are analyzing something to do with our communication. There is no need. You already communicate through the proper channels, through us. Yes, indeed. But will you tell me all I need to know? We tell you what we are assigned to tell you. We wish you were more aware of the physiology of your brain. We could tell you much more about your state. As it is, we have extreme difficulty finding words to describe the location of our teams. You realize our inadequacy. You are so new to us. I'd like to speak to an individual. Individual? One of you, acting alone. We have studied individual in your conception. We do not fit the word. 
There are no individuals, key clusters placed along travel juncture, lymph and blood vessels to monitor performance of traveling clusters, servant cells, tailored cells. You are like the mightiest of cell command clusters, yet you are enclosed and have not chosen to exert your power. Why do you not exert control? I'm getting tired now. Please leave me alone for a while. Understood. Michael? Paulson Fuchs stood in the reception area. Hello, Paul, Bernard said. I've just been having the weirdest conversation. Yes? I think they're treating me like some sort of minor deity. Oh, dear, Paulson Fuchs said. And I probably only have a couple of weeks left. They stared at each other through the three-layer glass. Paulson Fuchs tried to speak several times, but nothing came out. He lifted his hands helplessly. Yeah, Bernard said, sighing. Bernard lay on the cot, one leg off the side and the other crooked with his foot propped against a fold in the mattress. He hadn't shaved in a week, nor bathed. His skin was heavily marked with white ridges, and his lower legs had grown prominences from his upper shins to the base of his toes. Even naked, he looked like he was wearing bell-bottom trousers. Every type of cell originally in his body, friend or foe, has been studied and put to use by the new sites. Bernard compares us with a monster. Not at all. I'm the monster here. Either that or the situation itself is monstrous. We are nowhere near to understanding the subtleties of your thought. The command cluster was much larger than a normal new site cluster. Bernard estimated it held at least 10,000 cells, with a commensurately greater thinking capacity. Do you have access to my memories of H.G. Wells? Yes. They are quite vivid for not being pure experience memories. Yes, well, they came from a book, an uncoding of an unreal experience. We are familiar with fiction. I feel like Cavour in The First Men in the Moon, speaking with the Grand Lunar. We are very different, Bernard, far more different than your comparison with the unreal experience would suggest. We can no longer hold your body form. What? You will be withdrawn into our realm again soon, within two days. All your work in the macro scale must be completed by that time. No. We have no choice. We have held off long enough. We must transform. No. I'm not ready. This is too much. He sat up on the edge of the cot, his grotesquely ridged face dripping sweat. Paulson Fuchs stood in the observation chamber, leaning forward on the table, eyes lowered. He had had enough of staring at what lay on the cot in the containment lab. Bernard had lost his human form in the early morning. Now a gray and dark brown mass lay on his bed, portions extending to the floor on two sides. Before he had been confined to one position, Bernard had picked up the portable keyboard and carried it with him to his cot. The monitor in the control lab recorded a steady flow of words, Bernard's record of his transformation. They now know me, through and through. All my thoughts and motives. I am a theme in their art, their wonderful living fictions. They have duplicated me a million times over. Which of me writes this? I do not know. There is no longer an original. Paul... I wish you could join us. 
We are aware of the pressures on you. No, you must destroy. I do not like my old self, Paul. I have given it up, most of it. Pruned away withered pieces. Relived and reshaped whole sections of my fifty-two years. Diverging. Some other takes the writing. Meeting myself. Command clusters coordinate. Celebration. Drunk with experience. Freedom knowing. Brief. Coming. New Year. Nova. That was Stephen Carney reading excerpts from Greg Bear's 1985 novel Blood Music. Studio 360's Eric Malinsky produced our story. From my heart and from my hand, why don't people understand my intention? That is it for this week's show. Thank you very much for listening. Studio 360 is a co-production of WNYC and PRI, Public Radio International. Our production team includes Jenny Lawton, Andrew Adam Newman, Louis Mitchell, Krista Ripple, Sam Kim, Skylar Swenson, Tommy Bazarian, Zoe Saunders, Gabriella Cortez, Judy Gu, Jackie Harris. Studio 360's series on creativity and science is supported in part by the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, enhancing public understanding of science and technology in the modern world. More information is online at sloan.org. PRI Public Radio International. Next time in Studio 360, the brilliant Taylor Mack dives deep into the history of American pop music and brings it back to life one decade at a time. And the 1770s decade is about how America was founded on booze, man boy love, and dandy revenge. That's next time in Studio 360 from PRI and WNYC. 